This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Drinking with Authors, Literary Briefs. We had a lot of alcohol edition. I'm your host, Erica Lance. My co-host today is... Vanessa Valiente, and I will admit, I've drank a lot, and I'm feeling pretty fantastic right now. I am, I am drank an entire bottle of wine, but we're going to go over what we're drinking in a minute. Our amazing guest today, amazing, is Chuck Gannon. Woo! There's a laugh track that's put over this. I like to say that. Let's out. <laughs> well, as long as it's not a vomit track, I'm good. Yeah. No, it's a laugh track. Okay, let's talk about what we're drinking. I'm not going to lie. The last of this is in my cup, which is 19 Crimes, the Banished Wine. Nothing like drinking at least an entire bottle of wine on the podcast. Vanessa, what are you drinking? I'm still drinking 19 Crimes, the Uprising, and it is a crime that there's still wine in these two vessels right here. So, but it's, 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 it's good. It's good. I know you're failing, but I'm going to move on. Chuck, what are you drinking? Angel's Envy bourbon mm-hmm. uh, casked I- in casked in sherry casks or, um, or uh, uh, it's either sherry or um, uh, port. And uh, then there's the mystery glass. I like the mystery that glass. That will have to do. I'll have to send you our swag, our Drinking with Authors swag. Um, that's, you know, you have to oh, be on the show do. to get the swag, but that's what I put all my beverages sure. in. And, oh, do you have the shot glass nearby? He I all- don't have my shot glass nearby, but I could definitely do an Irish car bomb when it's time. We, we do have a lovely shot glass as well. Yes. <laughs> I like that you just said lovely shot glasses. <laughs> like, it's in a new car. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Rapid fire questions. We get people drunk and then ask them, Chuck, what is your favorite book of all time? I don't think I have one, but I'm going to say one that uh, it just sticks with me. There, there are two for very different reasons. They're not in the genre. Well, they're actually both in the genre, but most people wouldn't think of them that way. One is John Gardner's Grendel. Oh. Uh, uh, just an outstanding book, a uh, tour de force of, of a really simple style that tells an extraordinary tale. It tells it from the point of view of the monster, of Grendel. Um, I took a lot of inspiration from the way that dragon speaks in, when, I was, uh, when I was doing the dragon from um, This Broken World. Um, and, and because it changed the way I looked at fiction and the possibilities of fiction, uh, Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. Uh, it's a lot of people will say Faulkner, I like Faulkner. And, and it's not easy reading, but Faulkner takes huge chances. They don't always work, but in taking those huge chances, at least I am indebted to the way it just sort of opened my eyes to different things to try. And as you've heard me say, I think earlier, uh, rules, you know, every, every rule is defined by exceptions. So the idea of playing mix and match with different, it's, it's what he does and what all authors do with the written word for me is like a painter with different colors on their palette. The more colors I have, the more, the more nuance, the, more, the, more, the, the greater richness I can hope to bring to a canvas. Do, that's a different story. No, I like that. That's true. The, that the theory of greatness, dum, dum, dum. 
I feel okay, like I need to ask the next favorite book about, oh, sorry, Vanessa, what did you say? What I was going to say is, well, before we ask, because we're going to ask you what your least favorite book is, I just want to know, like, is there a more contemporary author, maybe not, has a wide variety of books, but is there like a sci-fi book or anything within the last, like, let's say seven years maybe that has resonated with you in any way, just as something as, you know, some, a recommendation. So many. Uh, Way to go there, Vanessa. Seven years. Where the hell did you come up with that? Oh, he's looking for a good recommendation. So I'm I'm asking for me. I'm being selfish in this question. I need a, I need a recommendation. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to go to somebody, a friend of mine who I miss a lot different times, different moments, definitely more than seven years of age. But if you're anything written by Octavia Butler is Ooh. absolutely worth reading in my opinion. Okay. Um, and, uh, and probably, and it, I, I can say that without, without, and what a beautiful person, what a wonderful and beautiful person. I could, t- if we had time, I could tell you stories. But uh, I miss her a lot. And uh, I would say that there's a, I could go on forever. The reason you don't hear me saying much is I'm thinking, if I say this book, then I'm going to piss this person off because I know these people, you know, <laughs> it's like, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to leave anybody out because when I get a chance to read, I've been hugely fortunate. So I'm going to make a decision based on a book that I think has been way too books that have been way too overlooked. One was a Nebula nominee, did not win, same year that my third book did not win. We were there. We cried in our notional beer together. And another one that didn't make the nebulas it should have been. Um, they're friends of mine, but their books blew me away. Um, Lawrence Schoen's Barsk, 2016. A tour de force. In an entirely different vein. Tom Doyle, American craftsman. And the reason I'm feeling okay about mentioning them is because no one is going to say, because the thing that those two books have in common, in addition to be, in, in addition to being excellent and worthy of rereads, at least one, is that they just didn't get the attention they deserve, and that just flabbergasts me. Absolutely flabbergasts me. And, it can only be one. Only one gets all the recognition, and then it's like everything else is disregarded. You know what I mean? And, oh, I give a, I gave a. Nebula loser speech about that one time, and it's a, it was uh, at that at that very well. That's a tradition at the nebulas, or it had been, and where the idea is, it's the alternate reality nebula acceptance speech, which was what if you had won the nebula in the in the alternate reality, what speech would you give? And to boil down the core of mine, it was it was that who wins doesn't matter, really. Think of a, a museum. You go into you go to the Renaissance wing. You expect to see one picture? My God, what a letdown that would be. Because you boil it down to one, you at least want a gallery. So you've got all the finalists. And then what about all the people who didn't get read in time or came out late or just no one? The bottom line is this should be every, the more, the more notice you get, the more you should be shining that line back out on those who did not have that spotlight on them. That's, to my mind, the thing to do. And so, so I absolutely agree with what you just said about one gets all the attention and the others don't get noticed. You know what? If there was only the one painting from every year, no one would bother visit the museum. So, so remember how you're here, yeah. you know, and remember all the people that aren't and the fact that 
quite frankly, you victored you for what whether it was chance or quality or what combination of the two, everybody on this dais and many, many others made you look good by you being even better than they are, at least in somebody's opinion. The bottom line is share that wealth back out. That should be your first thought. I, I completely agree. And not to go on a, a, a full soapbox, but like the wonderful thing about art is that we have a capacity to love more than one and there doesn't have to be one. And yeah. so that's, that's like the very condensed version of my Ted talk, but basically, you know, we, we should support and uplift uh, like other authors. And the fact that you brought those up, that's, that's pretty awesome because we need more recognition, more recognition for other authors who may not be Absolutely. the chosen one. Yeah. Well, I think as a community, we have to one support each other, but I think that's one thing a lot of um, authors do very well is talk about other authors. If they're really the, you know, every author that I've interviewed, pretty much talks about other authors and the greatness of other authors. And I think that's important because if you just get up and go, I'm the best thing since sliced bread. Cool, 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 cool. But that's not what our art is. You want to expand it. You want to get people because to your point on the last podcast about the voracious readers, unless you're going to detonate books every five minutes, your readers need other people funnel them to people who are great and do, do that recommendation because they, they're going to want to read more stuff. The readers are more voracious than they've been in a, a long time. Give somebody I else. I don't remember who said it. It might've been Hannah Arendt. I'm not sure, but um, there's a, there's a really basic principle of, of human nature. And I, I think it goes to the idea of why would you recommend another reader? One, it ain't a zero sum game. People who are, that we're science fiction writers and fantasy writers, and our imagination believes that the, the, the pizza pie cannot be baked larger. If we write, you know, it's if you, if you write it, they will come. If you write more, more will come. I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe that it is, it's just, do we, do we compete well enough for their disposable income? Are we writing that well? Well, the answer is, yes, we can, and we should, and we should try, and we should support each other in that. If you think competitively, you're, you're going to be drilling down in the other direction. And competition, you have enough competition with yourself. That's, that in a sense, that's the only person you should be competing with. Um, and there was something else I was going to say, but you know, this all came from just one or two questions, so we probably need to move on. Yeah, no, okay. <laughs> so the usual follow-up question is, what is your least favorite book of all time? And if you, if you are worried about naming anyone, feel free to name a book that the author is no longer with us, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> That's, well, that was my, actually, that, my worst book is Weathering Heights. I detest Weathering Heights and the author is no longer with us. I, it, yeah, I just, I, I hated that. Heathcliff was not a romantic interest for me. I'm sorry, but you know, but. Chuck, you, t you tell us. <laughs> okay. I have, uh, I think by comparison to the book that I'm thinking of, or the, uh, and I can't even remember the title. I can only remember the author's name. I think it was one of the two or three novels he ever wrote. Um, this will not be a well-known name to you, but he was an enfant terrible in the, uh, in the French new wave, I guess you could say. Not science fiction, just post-structural deconstruction sort of informed fiction. His name was Rob Grillet. 
It is spelled R-O-B-B-E, and then the word grill with a T at the end. As the French spelling word with the E-T. And his book was about 180 pages long, and it had the following features. Um, it was written not in the first person, not in the third person. It was written in the second person, future tense. Oh my God. Uh, this was that sounds the, painful. That just the, sounds painful. Well, well, the, here you go. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line is that look, look I can I can go in talking going with the art metaphor. I can go. I like a couple of canvases by Mondrian. You know, the different lines and this, that, and the other thing. But a whole museum of them, and 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 the the sort of the 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 just one line. You know, one line going through a white canvas, and it's called infinity. And I'm supposed to go, ooh. Well, maybe I will. For one, I'll go, ooh. But if I see that white, that line going through the white canvas and there's a red dot slightly off the center of it, or let's put it in the center first, and that's one's titled Violent Infinity. Then you put it slightly off to one side and you call that the chaos of violent infinity. I'm sorry, this isn't art. This is con artistry. That's what this is. And no, I'm not there. I'm just not coming along for it. I can, I can maybe even take that many in, but after that, if I go up and up and up on the Guggenheim and it's nothing but that and more of that, there's a point where it's like, basta, enough, I had it. Um, and Rob Grillet is doing that. I had gotten about a page and a half in. I don't have a problem reading that page and a half, but there was no way I was reading another 178 and a half pages of that. Was not happening. And, <laughs> and, and so that obviously left a huge impact on me. I try to find, I, I, I pick up every book and I said, I say, this person, this author is going to teach me something. And almost always I can say that and mean that in a positive sense, the way that you, even if I don't like their story, even if I think they're like, you, you had this, this school of literature in, in, main, in mainstream that was very short lived, guess why, called opacity. William Gaddis, uh, Robert Goss, these, these guys who their entire idea was to constantly throw stuff at you. So you're always aware of the artifice of narrative and that narrative is a, recon a selective reconstruction of real events, which means it has nothing to do with reality. And it's just our way. It's like a security blanket we carry around to make sense of reality. And my attitude is I got to go wash my cat. Oh, I don't have a cat yet, but I'm going to get one on the way. Um, th that's I have. I, I, why? Why? I mean, I, I understand the principle, but it's, it's, it's essentially more of a philosophical or, or, or analytical cr critique, not a story. I don't want that. Don't call yourself a novel. I don't know what you want to call yourself. You were creative enough to come up with that. Come up with another name, but don't call it a novel. I feel like it's bait and switch or bait and swap is the case maybe because I felt kind of abused. So there you go. Yeah, no. I don't have, but I don't have really strong feelings about it. I, yeah, I was going to say that elicited no <laughs> strong emotion on that situation. All, like, you know, it was very, that was a very boring answer. So <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about Thank being a you. Because we left that off, but let's, let's go to being a weirdo, shall we? We are statistically weirdos in our field. And oh. we are proud of it, but it has consequences. Here's what I mean by that. I worked in advertising for a while. There is a group of people you absolutely are going to probably never get good return on investment in advertising dollars. And those are people who actually, if you, and they didn't 
tweak to this right away. It took a while. People who like change, I don't mean new stuff. I don't mean novelty. I mean fundamental change, something that's going to leave their world different, importantly different than it was the day before. The sort of stuff we do when we talk about science fiction, the sort of stuff we do when we imagine a world, another world in fantasy. The problem with selling to those people is that most people, you sell to them based on their concern with the way things are. Who's going to see me in that car? Am I going to look good in that dress? What sort of, what sort of thing is considered in? What's out? Et cetera. All of this, when you think about it, is focused on what other people are going to think about you. But let's face it. If, other, if we really, really care that deeply about what other people think about us compared to our desire, the stronger desire to go over the next hill, to see what might be, to essentially, we are more invested in alterity and change than we are in things staying the way we are, or we wouldn't be writing the genres we do. You are statistically an anomaly. And so much so that advertising has learned not to spend dollars on you. I just discovered that I'm a statistical anomaly and I'm actually kind of good with that. <laughs> yeah. Actually, look, look, like let's, let's be, let's be, let's take it one step further into evolution. If the, if we swapped the percentage, right? If it was mostly us and mostly folks who weren't interested in alterity, what would ever get done? We tend to be the change agents. We tend to be the person who says, I know that we let the wheat in that water rot, but it might be fun to drink and we'll call it beer. You know, th these sort of things. It's, it's us who said, well, no, we'll bring the fire in the cave. I'll bet we can make that ourselves, damn it. Oh, you're nuts. You know, all of, you don't, you can't function with most of your society constantly bringing change in. Stability is the canvas upon which change paints change. So I would say that we are, we're in an interesting position. It's probably, we may say, oh, I wish there was more of us. Probably not doable. I don't know how sustainable that would be. And I'm not saying this is an elitist thing or anything like that. This is sheer functionality. How does a species evolve? It's got to have some change agents, but it probably can't have a majority of people's change agents. No, it's you're talking to somebody who did um, human resources for 20 years, and I can tell you I'm with sorry. clarity, <laughs> people do not like change, even if you move mm -hmm. their desk from one place to another. Like the oh, world ends, and you're like, oh my God. But what you said is completely, almost violently true because it is true. Like we're willing to go, we should do this different thing. And everybody else is like, oh my God, don't touch anything. And you're like, cool, cool, cool. So I did this different thing, you know? I, I'm assuming Vanessa, you're moving around. That's adorable in your camera. I'm not doing feng shui. I was afraid that mid conversation, my phone, my computer would just die because I realized my 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 lovely charger right here was not attached. <laughs> well, you are super pretty today. Okay, next question: What is your favorite book to movie or book to um, television series? Mm -hmm. Oh boy! So I think probably inside the genre. No, just period. Well, I'm going to go inside the genre first because I, I really like it and because a lot of people say that there's a lot about the Riordan series that reminds them of The Expanse. I think The Expanse is, is an absolute kick-ass show. I, I, I all, all about that. Stephen Street is a fantastic 
I feel like he doesn't get enough credit, the actor and uh, Stephen. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I love that show. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is a fantastic show. I would say the best movie adaptation I've ever seen is you, you'd have to read the book by uh, Wheeler and Burdick, I think it is, Failsafe, and then see the movie made. The, the black and white movie that was made with uh, Henry Fonda, Larry Hagman, uh, a, a gripping, terrifying movie about how the sort of terrible politics that nuclear annihilation could, could potentially put us into. And uh, it, is, it is not 100% faithful to the book in the sense that the most faithful one I've ever seen is the Virgin Atlantic adaptation of 1984. At, uh, Richard Burton... Hurt, uh, all absolutely faithful, dismal, absolutely dismal, because books are not movies, and they work differently, and they and the dialogue needs to be changed. And this is one of the things I was a script doctor, so this is something I did. And uh, and it's the the thing about the good adaptations is they understand the differences of the media, and they say, how do we impart the same experience, but take. But you, but assume we're going through a different lens and therefore adjust how we are delivering it. You don't just follow every line. You don't just follow every scene. You're going to have to put some in. You're going to have to take some out. You're going to have to tweak them. Maybe more than that, but that's, that's the real key. And so those are, those are mine. I always, I always feel that writing screenplays and seeing, I have so much passionate conversation around this, but I feel that when you're taking a book and you're trying to adapt it to a screenplay or a, a show, shows are easier if you get many episodes because you get a lot of playtime to do the story. But you almost in a book have to pick which part of the story you're going to tell if you're going to do a movie. You're not ever going to freaking tell the entire book. It is impossible to do that and in a 120-minute movie. And this is why some of the best movies may adapted from, narr- from written narrative or novellas. Or and it, it, it makes perfect sense. You know, what's interesting is I had some producers in Hollywood that I was talking to. I actually owe them scripts. So hopefully they're not listening, but um, one of the things they said that they loved and they probably have the same comment about you is they love authors because we do world building. And when we're writing scripts, we have worlds behind them. And I can always tell when I'm watching a movie did the person not think beyond that little lens that you're talking about? Did they actually build something behind? But, 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 the caveat is not all authors are able to pull themselves back to put that 120 pages of dialogue together because it's the director's thing to put all the pictures together, the dialogue to tell the story you want to tell. So it's this weird when they find people like that, such as yeah. yourself, it's a very weird sort of hybrid creature that they're not used to, but they love it when they encounter it versus somebody who's just a script writer. Cause yeah. then you're going to get a script. Not that it's always bad, but you're going to get somebody who didn't put a whole world beyond that 120 minutes. It's, it's probably, we're probably overkill for a like fast and furious 13. Um, because there is no world behind it, really. There's some character lines that carry forward. But if you're telling Dune, the character, the lead character really is the world. Pa- Paul Atreides is important, but the world, it, there's a reason it's called Dune, not, you know, later on we get the House Atreides, but 
There's a reason it's called Dune. I think the same thing is true of, uh, of, of Blade Runner. Blade Runner has, as, as significant and central as the characters are, that world jumps off the page at you. And some directors are willing to take the time to do it. Some aren't. But I always, I always appreciate that lushness, like where even if like a secondary character who's not even like the main lead, even if they're on the screen or the page for like a short brief moment, you feel like they have this whole other backstory. Yes. Even if yeah. They don't even explain. It. And I feel like that's the best way to approach movies and TV shows yep. is you don't have to give everything, but you need to make it feel like they have so much to say. And that's how I deal with technology in my novels. No one wants to get an engineering brief. I've done the work. You don't have to. If somebody decides they want to dig around in there and say, does this make sense in any way? Go to my website, look at some of the ancillary material that, that's out there. And you're going to find, well, I don't know that I agree with him, but he sure did his homework. But that's not where you, you know, as, as I like to say, that if you go, imagine how weird it would be if you, somebody came into your house and you would say, now, let me get you a bite to eat. But first, allow me to explain the, this, this extraordinary black device with a door that we call the microwave and the way it excites radiation to be able to cook your food miraculously without burning anything. Well, that's like, will you cook some microwave? Will you mic me some food already? You don't have to explain every part of an environment. Readers fill in the blanks. They understand if later on, if the other things you've revealed about your environment, whether this is magic or technology, it would seem to be that I find that readers usually give you enough leeway. If, you're, if you are building their confidence in terms of your other performance as an author, they'll give you enough leeway to say, well, let's see if that makes sense later on. And then something pops up, it's like, yeah, it's consistent. Something in this world is doing that. So, you know, this is, this is something that could happen. And they don't, they don't worry about it. They really don't worry well, about it. One of my, my largest pet peeves, and this is going to lead to my next question, is when people over-describe things. It is one of my largest pet peeves as a reader because I'm like, this is literally painful now to read. Like, this is painful. I don't care how many buttons it had on it. I don't care what lights the button it's had. Unless this is somehow relevant to the story, I don't give a shit about this panel. Like, that's where it goes to. But what are your pet peeves as a reader when you're reading stuff? Uh language this is john hartness said this prose without poetry in it without any without any variation of sentence without you know it's just declared a bam 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 everybody says hemingway was like that no hemingway was just doing it in a much more subtle way but there's a lot of variation in hemingway and he actually saves it for um he saves the more the the more complex things and the more rushed things for effect later on in the novel and I could give you some, in his novels and I could give you examples of that but for me that's one thing a, 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 la, a tin ear a tin ear conveying the bolts the nuts and bolts of the story just is not enough that's not the only reason I'm reading what I'm reading right now uh, transport me or I'm getting off at the next stop it, it, it's kind of like that um, another thing that that bothers me is preciousness which is unfortunately not always obvious. This is, this is part of the, that's part of that 14 year old, you know, narrative taste that doesn't quite get purged in time. It's, uh, it's, it's, I think, particularly unfortunate when people who come to realizing they want to write late and they are, they're, they're, the, the, you get this sort of weird hybrid animal of a text 
which is it's absolutely informed by adult notions of love and loss and tragedy and hope and, and surprise and disappointment and coping. And yet it has these mannerisms that are more like what a, a fairly ad, advanced 17 or 16 year old would be writing. And you say, wow, this feels really weird. It's like, you know, why does, why does this camel have tentacles? It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's, that's how it feels. Um, and uh, it's so, so that's a, that's a pet peeve. I, I have to say, um, I, I do not, language has forms for a reason. It is very significant to me, for instance, that Picasso proved before he ever, ever went into his more exploratory periods, he proved and showed repeatedly how good he was with the human form in classical modes. Now, that's a, that's a body of work of a single person over time. As a writer, I'm getting a, as a reader, I get a book. I don't know who this person is. You need to prove to me you know the rules before you break the rules. If you break the rules first, unless you quickly come in behind that and show me that you really know what you're doing, you could lose me. Which, by the way, I think is why Faulkner loses so many people in Sound and the Fury. Because his first scene, his first section is from the viewpoint of Benji, who's retarded. And one of, the, one of the, the great triumphs of it is he's showing you the world through a retarded individual's eyes. This is a losing, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tour de force, but it's a losing proposition. Why I say that is because it confuses a lot of people and turns them off. But on the other hand, I've asked students along the way, why do you think he put it first? Don't you think he's, do you think Faulkner didn't understand? I don't know, maybe he was lazy, maybe the, it's like, no, because... If you had oriented yourself to the world, right? You'd, you'd heard from Quentin and then you heard from, from the other characters that were in there, right? You, so then you'd know the family setup, you'd know the problems in the family, you'd know all this. Only by stepping into the world first in the shoes of a retarded individual do you have a hope of really experiencing the terrors, the uncertainty of being retarded. Because you've been pre-oriented if you get the other sections first only if he hits you in the face with that right away. And most people don't get past it. It's like, it's this, it's this, this tragic, in my mind, because so many people don't read past that, it's this, it's this understandably kind of Meisterstroke, but people don't realize it for what it is. And it underscores the danger of don't break the rules until you've shown, until you've tipped your hand long enough to say, I know what I'm doing. Now I'm playing with it. And then you play with Well, you have to know the rules. Some people think they do, and then they do stuff, and you're like, what the hell are you doing? Do you, well, I think that's, you are that's the kind of unspoken second part of my observation. It's like, then go learn the language, damn it. I mean, you have to. You have to. Well, and I think it's interesting because even as, you know, I've been writing a really long time, but really writing for a period and reading stuff. I'm one of these people that I won't finish a book. If I don't like the book, if you don't grab me, I'm not finishing the book. I don't waste my time. I don't care if I bought it. I'm not giving you my time. If you've done something that's thrown me out of the story. And um, I think as you know, readers, as a reader myself, I have of course different, there's three of us on this call. I have a different view of a book than you guys would necessarily have of a book. Right. But I look at these books and I go, 
you put all this, um, you know, you feel it's your baby, you put all this effort into it and you didn't pay attention to tenses. And you kind of talked about self-publishing. We talk about publishing a lot on the show that if you don't take the time, not only as a writer to understand the rules, but understand the rules of how a book is comprised, editing, all of that stuff, layout, all the things. And then I get the book and I'm like, nah, like it will lose me in 2.5 seconds. I have a lot of friends and a lot of people I've talked to that are like, I'll give them a chance. And I'm like, you don't, you don't have that chance. And guess what? I won't pick up another book by you if you do that. This is why I said the hybrid career earlier and why it's good to get to try your to, to take a run at traditional publishing because you're going to be you're going to encounter what the prevailing expectations have been for hundreds of years. And there's a value to that. Even if you decide not to go that route, it's going to it's going to tell you your game is going to be measured against this. That's a worthwhile piece of information to have. What about um, world your world books? So we talked about notes on the last podcast. We're not bringing that up again. But do you have world books for all your series? World books for myself or that? Like, like a Bible that you use to, to keep track of everything. Oh, my God. Uh, the spreadsheets alone to make sure that all the different events line up on a calendar. Um, I do. Uh, as a matter of fact, before, I, before Fire with Fire came out, which was about 140 something is happening that's making Vanessa laugh. No, she's because... loving it. You're, you're after her own heart. Her... No, no, I'm not offended. I'm thinking, have I met another person who's got volumes lining the wall of all yes. of the background? Yes, yes. And Erica is ye yells at me daily about stop writing the world book and write the Russian Okay, book. but this is because her world book is currently bigger than the novel that's supposed to be produced. 10,000 words it's not that no it is I mean so so maybe because of all those years that I wasn't able to write at the level I wanted to uh, and complete the novel uh, that may answer for some of this but possibly not but by the time I published fire with fire which was 142,000 words my my files for the universe, I knew it was going to be a series, so cut me some slack, was 115,000. Okay. Uh, no. So Vanessa. Okay. See? No. Understand. You are not jumping on the Chuck bandwagon right now. I'm not letting you. You produce one book, and then I will let you jump on the Chuck bandwagon. This is bull crap. I don't, I and Chuck's... I mean, mine is like a four book, at least, and with two spinoff ideas. So he understands. Erica, give me a little slack. You here. publish a book and he'll understand. <laughs> so so the, the, the guest sits back and has, enjoys his drink after watching the fire rage that he so carefully and cunningly set. I keep Cheers. teasing her. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. Mayhem and madness. Here we go. <laughs> Cheers. Her prose is amazing. It's just, I'm a firm, like, anyway, we're, we're going to, I'm going to give Vanessa what the next question. So I'm going to let her think about this. But one of the things I'm a firm believer of is don't put out bad work, but write and actually publish your work. Like don't,
just sit on it and mess with it and keep retyping it and keep retyping it. Like there's a point where you have to actually tell the story. It doesn't help if you're just, I mean, unless you just want to do it for yourself, Vanessa. But the fact is, is that like her prose is amazing, but I'm like, you have to actually get to a point of finishing this book at some point. And I have, I will admit, I do have a hard part. I think it's that, perf like, you know, when the vision of like what you envision the book to be and what you actually write and you're trying to bridge that gap, but you just know that it'll never completely be right, meet together. And I, and I, I would, I would like to know, Chuck, like, at what point do you just let go? Like how, at what point, what's your moment of like, okay, I just need to let it go. Well, one of the really helpful things with that is when you're in that tunnel of creation and you see a light coming and that light coming is straight towards you. And that's called your deadline. <laughs> and the bottom line is that's a freight train. And if you, if you, if you're still standing there, when it rolls over you, your publisher is screwed up. Your, the, the distributor is screwed up. The, and the bottom line is your name is mud. So that's a strong, that's a very strong one. However, that's at probably a slightly later stage than I think the one you're Oh no, she at. likes to pass up the deadline. She's fantastic at that. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I would say the question, so uh, not to name drop, but it's too good not to know where this comes from because it's so classic. Just so you know, you're not alone with this. You know, the, uh, the novel World War Z, right? Yeah. World War Z is by Max, um, Max Brooks. Do you know who Max Brooks is? Max Brooks uh, is Mel Brooks' son. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So Max and I, we got invited to do this sort of uh, roundtable, teach writing, teach military people to think like science fiction writers at, uh, at Quantico, uh, the, uh, the, the Marine base. And they were hosting that. And, uh, and so we were there, we, we struck up a conversation. He told me a great story. He said he, he, had the, he had another novel. It wasn't World War Z. And he, he wanted to get his dad's opinion on it. So he brought it by the house and he said, Dad, will you, will you look at this? And, uh, and, and Mel said, sure, sure, leave it. And so, uh, so Max left it and he came back to the house two weeks later and he said, so Dad, did you read it? Yeah, I read it. It's okay, good. Yeah, but was it really okay? It's really okay. Do you think it's do you think it's ready to go though? Said, it's ready. Max said, what I'm trying to ask is, is it done? And Mel finally puts down his newspaper, takes his glasses off, and says, It's done enough. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vanessa, it's done enough. Oh, so uh, because I was waiting for the many gods to tell me that it was okay. And, and I think that's what my problem is, is that that's what But you only got me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm saying that <laughs> you got, you got, you got really short changed on that expectation. And I personally apologize, but at, <laughs> at any rate, I think that, I think if you have completed the important thing to do, in my opinion is first of all, it's like, it's like PhDs. You know what those, you know what the three words, a, the three letters, A, B, D, C, whoa, well. Whoa, we got a very okay. intimate view, guys, of Chuck's keyboard, just so you know. You did, well, I was wondering how that statement was gonna end and I was more than a little fearful. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
but my apologies don't run that far. Um, at any rate, so so, this, so all I'm all I'm saying is this: I think when you've got something completed, uh, do you have something completed yet? Yes and no. Do you have something where you wrote the end, notionally or actually? It's the last words in the last in the last chapter, and you can set it aside and say, now at this point, I could move on to the next thing if I wanted to. No, you she can't keeps say rewriting it. But, uh, no, no, and the reason and the reason why is that I feel right because for me, it's that second reaching the climax situation I feel like my ending is very strong and my beginning is very strong I, I don't want to call the middle the saggy middle because I have a lot of good stuff happening but there's this moment right between like reaching that crest of the climax that I feel like it falls apart and that's where I'm hesitant and uh, my problem is that imposterism and then the perfectionism and that's where, and then you, because I think that one of the worst things I do as a writer is that I know when I look at a final, final, final book, that book has been edited and gone through like a million times, but in my mind, because it doesn't look anything like close to that final thing, I have a hard time letting it go. Yeah. So uh, a couple, a couple of things. Um, Release the first one. Don't use your own name and see. And because the reactions are going to be educational, whatever they are. Uh, you also, the thing about this is there's this amongst academics, there's something called ABD it stands for all but dissertation for every doctorate that's awarded. There are usually three to four ABDs out there. The ability to complete a novel tells editors something and tells you something that you can do it. Even if you don't like it, you brought it through. Now, regarding what you're worried about regarding the middle point, uh, I, use, I use something from cinema and, and film and, and fil uh, Sid Fields, uh, 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 script writing. I, I think it's simply called script writing. The name is Sid, Sid Fields. It's an older book, but he has a great, it's a great thing. And you can see this in movie after movie. So there, think, of the, think of your plot in, not in, in first the halfway point, and then take the front half and the back half and split those. Now move on either one of those, the, the, uh, those little, that little quarter, move it towards the far end. So you're dealing with the first, most of the first quarter, but not quite. And everything else towards the half, then most of the rest of the way to the end, and then a little bit, like maybe, you know, uh, uh, one eighth of the way is where you get another point. Here's what those points are. The middle is a flip over. In almost every movie you can think of, and any good story, there's a plan. The plan is going to go, and the plan is going to be this. And you get to the middle, and the plan, something is discovered. There's a rat in the organization. There's a, they had the intelligence on, on this all along. This person is married when they, they were supposedly not married. Whatever the, and everything all, all of a sudden flips on its head. The, the, all the expectations in the first half of their book have been undone and now have to be remade. Okay, so that's a good thing, right? That's the major flop point right in the middle of the book. And it's what keeps the middle of the book interesting because you feel like you're getting to the end and then something happens, which also feels a little bit like real life, doesn't it? <laughs> so, so there's that. Now, the other thing is, what are those other two little points? The, it's, it's not something that changes the plan, but it's the twist. 
where in order to get to the plan, you have to do something entirely unexpected. Trust somebody you won't trust. Trust a piece of technology you won't trust. Go back to a place you said you'd never go back to. These sort of things. They don't undo the plan, but in order to make the plan happen, you've got to do this thing that, that was not on anybody's radar and create stress and disagreement and risk and whatever else. So da 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 Just before the first quarter, you know, we've got a plan. Oh my God, no, we can't, we can't do it without this. I'm not going back there. That's where my, my ex-wife is. She's married again. And, and, and so, but they do, and all sorts of things happen. Unexpected things happen, probably some good, some bad, and they move on towards the plan. The plan is going to come to its fruition at roughly about just after the middle point of the book, except for you get to the middle point of the book, and that's when it turns out, no, you didn't have all the facts. Or you didn't understand that you had a, a, a rat in your organization or something like that. And now it's 52 card pickup. Everybody's running around trying to make something work. So another plan comes up. Same pattern. Move that plan. That plan is having to be evolved. It's exciting because it doesn't have, no one's starting from a stable place. They started now from that midpoint where everything went crazy, right? Now they're trying to invent on the fly, come up with another good way to achieve the same or a modified objective. And they're almost there. And then that other thing happens. I'm going to have to, it's, it's like, it's not as, it's, it's bigger than Indiana Jones saying, I hate snakes. It's bigger than that. But it is, it's on that order of, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to give something up. I'm going to have to do something I don't want to do. I did not foresee happening. And maybe people are going to get killed. Maybe I'm going to get killed, et cetera, et cetera. That sort of twist right at the end. And the bottom line is it is that uncertainty because after it's happened in the middle, here's the thing. So you get that first little deviation just before the first quarter and the reader at that point knows, uh, this isn't going just the way they plan, is it? And then they get to the middle. It's like, holy shit, the wheels just came off the bus. <laughs> by, that, by that point, even as this rest of the thing is going on, your reader or viewer is saying, I, I don't trust this because they got a pattern, right? Every time they think they know what's going to happen, I don't trust this, this author. This, this finesse is going to spring a trap. On. There it is. Yeah, and <laughs> that, that is a way to think about your middle, therefore, is in that structure and each one handing off to the next. And by the end, they, they can't not finish because they know it's not going to be what they expect. Mm -hmm. Be writing advice. Finish your damn book, Vanessa. <laughs> Okay, Chuck, we have yes. to wrap up this episode, although I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours. So invite me back when everybody has forgotten oh, okay. that I've ever, I've ever heard dulled your airwaves. We got to have you on for your next book release. Let us know and we, we should have you back on. Pencil me in for November. I'll be happy to be here. I will absolutely pencil you in and you can set 40 alarms for that November date. I will indeed. I will indeed. <laughs> Oh my goodness, you have been so fantastic. Thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I had a blast. And I had oh, bourbon. What's not to love? You know? Wonderful. Wonderful. This is what we like. Okay, so this has been Drinking with Authors, the Literary Briefs Edition. I'm your host, Erica Lance. My co-host has been Vanessa Valiente. And our guest today has been Chuck Gannon. Woo! So amazing. And with that, we will see you next time. <laughs>